I think that there's a lot that this could teach us as individuals and certainly collectively. How do you want to actually be in this world? What matters to you? And how to arrange your lives, our individual lives, so that we can have more of that which feels good. Hello all and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I hope you're all having a peaceful week. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I'm joined by my co-host Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, I hope you're doing well after our brief break uh, from the podcast last week. Yeah, I feel refreshed and ready to go, but uh, it's good to hear your voice again, Mike. Good to be back in the saddle. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And we're heading into August, which is National Wellness Month. And in 2020, I think wellness and mindfulness deserve special attention with all that's going on in the world. And this week, we were lucky to secure an interview with Dr. Ellen Langer, a social psychologist from Harvard University and one of the world's foremost mindfulness experts. And Dr. Langer was able to offer thoughts on her four decades of research in the field and how it can be applied to all of us really, but more specifically families living with ALS, Jeremy. Yeah, and I think you said it best, Mike. There's Couldn't think of a better time to have this conversation. I think wellness, both in terms of like that mental wellness, but overall wellness and, and everything that means has been very front of mind, certainly for me. And I think a lot of people, and as we've talked about uh, over the last several months, certainly our community, it's as front and center for them as, as maybe it's ever been. So couldn't be a better time to hear from Dr. Langer. She was the perfect guest and she's known as the mother of mindfulness. So with that, let's listen back to our conversation with Dr. Ellen Langer now. We are joined on the phone this morning by Dr. Ellen Langer, the celebrated social psychologist, author, researcher, professor, and artist from Harvard University. Dr. Langer, thank you so much for joining us on Connecting ALS today. My pleasure. I feel like I am selling you short with that introduction, so let me talk a little bit more about you. You are the recipient of four Distinguished Science Awards, including most recently the Liberty Science Genius Award. And I, I want to make sure for our listeners that we'll be linking to both of your websites, both LangerMindfulnessInstitute.com and EllenLanger.com in our show notes so they can learn more about your fascinating body of work and access pathways to your 11 books and uh, hundreds of research articles, many of which are, are focused around mindfulness. And you're often described, Doctor, as the mother of mindfulness. I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, that's fine. It's a nice child to have. <laughs> and with August being National Wellness Month, we figured we would we would focus our conversation on mindfulness today. But before we do that, please tell us a little bit about how you're doing out there on the Cape and, and how you're managing your life and work in Cambridge in the midst of a pandemic. Now, I'm very fortunate and actually enjoying this time, although I feel bad for people who are less fortunate. I'm in a beautiful location and I am meeting with my students over Zoom and meeting with people around the world basically through Zoom webinars I'm getting. So all of that is good. The restaurants were closed for quite some time. So I realized, came to realize how much I enjoy my own cooking. Mm -hmm. And that's been good. And now the restaurants are open, but I'm still doing most of the cooking myself. Nice. So it, it's been good. I'm uh, somebody who because of all this work on mindfulness, believes and finds ways to engage myself. And so it doesn't matter what's happening in the, the larger world. My smaller world is always full of good times. 
That's great to hear. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you talk about finding those times in, in the small world and, you know, a key in, in your own small world, that is. Now, a key aspect of so much of your work is the this concept of, of living in the present. And of course, you know, as you were discussing, the, the present right now can bring to mind thoughts of anxiety and isolation. How has the pandemic and, and these times that we're living in kind of shifted or what challenges that does that place on this idea of embracing and living in the present? Well, one fast comment about that before a longer answer is everybody thinks they're in the present because when they're not there, they're not there to know they're not there. Uh So I'm going to share with you how to actually be in the present. Uh, But before I do, that there's an attitude that many people have during this time, which is defensive pessimism. And in place of that, I strongly suggest adopting a view of mindful optimism. Now, defensive pessimism is expect the worst and hope for the best. And I find trouble with both parts of that. You tend to get what you expect. So if you're expecting the worst, you're looking for all of these negative things and seek and you shall find. But even hope, hope sounds like a good thing, but, and it's certainly better than being hopeless. But imagine you wake up in the morning and you go to the kitchen to make coffee. You're not hoping there's going to be coffee there. You you know there's going to be coffee there. Mm. And so hope has built into it, again, an expectation of disappointment. In place of this, I suggest that we just assume everything will be fine and go about living. But we don't put our heads in the sand. You make a plan for yourself. So you're going to quarantine, engage in social distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands, and whatever your particular plan might include, and then just go about being. And what happens by doing this, you build up your strength, and should something happen, which by the way is for almost all of us very unlikely, but should something happen, you're all this more strong, you're stronger to be able to deal with it. Stress leaves us more vulnerable. And you can be stressed, worrying about things that may never occur, and you've wasted those important moments that you could have been in the present living. Mm. And when I talk about mindfulness, it's so simple that it almost defies belief. It's the simple process of noticing new things. Everybody thinks they know. We're taught from you know, in school, little kids, to have absolutes, to... Um, Well, we think we know, but in fact, we don't. So I I start many of these talks and I ask people, how much is one in one? So, Mike, how much is one in one? Uh, I'm going to say two. And you're going to be wrong some of the time Uh. because it depends. Everything depends. And when we think we know, we don't pay any attention. One, if you add one wad of chewing gum to one wad of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You Mm -hmm. add one pile of laundry to one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. And the point of this is that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. And when we truly adopt an understanding of the inherent uncertainty, we naturally tune in because we know we don't know and finding out is fun. So I was at this horse event and this man asked me if I'd watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, I'm Harvard, Yale all the way through. I'm the A-plus student that you resented in school. (laughs) So I know better than anyone, this horse is not going to eat the hot dog. He comes back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. 
And it was at that moment that I realized everything I think I know could be wrong, <laughs> which makes everything much more interesting. So the simple process of noticing new things about things you think you know, you know, if it's novel, you're going to be mindful and notice anyway. But if it seems familiar and that you know it, and now you look for new things about it, what happens is that that puts you in the present, makes you sensitive to context and perspective, and the act of this actively noticing is the essence of engagement, so it feels good. So 40 years of research on this has shown us that as you're actively noticing new things, the neurons are firing, and it turns out to be literally and figuratively enlivening. We make older people more mindful, they live longer. And it turns out that when you're more mindful, people find you more appealing. They see you as more charismatic, trustworthy, and authentic. Mm -hmm. When you're more mindful, the things that you do end up bearing the imprint of your mindfulness. And I, I can you know, give you a chapter and verse for any of these things. Sure. But the point, the larger point is it affects everything. You know, no matter what you're doing, listening to a podcast, playing golf, eating a sandwich, you're doing it either mindfully or mindlessly. And being in one state of mind or the other is enormously different. So over 40 years, we've done lots of research and being mindful improves virtually everything. And it's fun and it's easy. Mm. So how's that for an introduction? Now, That's great. I probably answered all the questions you were going to ask. Of me. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I, I feel like we've already we've learned a lot just in that one question. I'm scrambling to take notes just for my own personal use. <laughs> Uh, but really, thank you for that kind of opening look at the concept of mindfulness. And I want to go a little more specifically as to how it can apply to those living with ALS. And I was looking through some notes about your book, Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. And I haven't had a chance to read that myself yet, but I do know two individuals living with ALS who have. And they talked about the way that that book, Counterclockwise, was really life-changing for them. Uh, can yeah. you talk about how that yeah. core philosophy, you know, best applies to someone who may be battling a terminal illness like ALS? Well, there are, there are several, several things about it. The first, let me just very briefly mention the counterclockwise study. Um, so uh, my, this was the first test of my mind-body unity idea, which is very simple. Let's put the mind and body back together. These are just words. If we do that, wherever we put the mind, we're necessarily putting the body. So I do a host of studies to show the control we actually have over things that before this we thought were uncontrollable. So we took 90-year-old men and we had them live in a retreat that we retrofitted to 20 years earlier. And they lived there as if they were their younger selves. We took a host of measures, even photographs of them before and then after. And in this brief time, living, speaking about the past in the present tense, as if they were their younger selves, their vision improved, their hearing improved, their strength improved, their memory improved. And the photographs that we took before and after, that we had people who knew nothing about the study evaluate, they were also seen as younger. Truth be told, they didn't look 20 years younger, but mm -hmm. noticeably, noticeably younger. So that's, that goes a great distance in saying how much we can control by changing our minds. The more recent work is about attention to symptom variability, which is a fancy way of saying noticing change, which is a fancy way of saying being mindful. Mm -hmm. And that 
most people, when they have a, a disorder, and let me tell you first, the, the groups that we did this work with were people who have MS, ALS, arthritis, chronic illness, depression, stress. Right now we're doing it with people with Parkinson's stroke. Uh, so lots of big, big disorders that have hurt people for years. And what happens when you get a diagnosis is that you tend to think your symptoms are going to stay the same or get worse. Nothing stays the same. Nothing only moves in one direction. And so the key to getting better across these disorders, in part, is recognizing when you don't have a symptom. But what happens is when you don't have a symptom, you think you're fine, so you're not thinking about the, dis uh, the disease. So what we did is a very simple thing. We contact people at random times throughout the day over the course of two weeks, and we simply ask them, how is the symptom now? Is it better or worse than before? So in answering that, the first thing is they see, gee, I don't have it to equal measure. It's not awful all the time. So they immediately feel a little better. Mm. By seeing why is it different now from before, that initiates a mindful search for the answer which 40 years of research has shown that's good for your health. And then finally, you're more likely to find a cure if you look for it than if you just presume it's uncontrollable. Mm. And we've done this across all these diseases. For ALS, what uh, the first go around, what we found were all sorts of improvements on psychological measures. And that now we're digging deeper and looking at the uh, more medically relevant measures, which we found for these other disorders. But the, the way it speaks to, to all populations is to realize that, <laughs> I say this as a scientist, uh, mm. maybe I shouldn't, but that there's only so much we know. Mm. And that all of medical research is based on probabilities. Now people take these, like horses don't eat meat, the probability, most horses under many circumstances don't eat meat, that gets translated into horses don't eat meat. And so by recognizing that the medical, there's limits to what medical knowledge can give us, leads us to potentially be more hopeful. And the one thing that we want to do, no matter what we're doing, you know, if I found out, regardless of disease, that I only had, let's say, a month to live, the question I should be asking myself is, well, how do I want to spend that month? Mm. And that many people, sadly, are sealed in unlived lives and don't come alive until they're given some terrible diagnosis. Being mindful allows us to, to actually be alive for all the moments that we are alive, rather than, as I said, sealed in unlived lives. The overwhelming evidence I have for over 40 years of study is that most of us are mindless most of the time. Mm. And so there's an advantage, oddly, to some of these big disorders. You know, I don't know that there's evidence with respect to ALS, but for cancer and heart attacks, that once people experience these things, they realize that time is precious and then they start making the most out of their lives. Mm which is a good lesson for all of us. Yeah. You know, I, I want to go back to this question of mindfulness and, and, and being in the present. And, you know, you, you talked about ways that people with a terminal illness can live in the moment. How does that, when you layer on, there's anxiety about, you know, 
living with the disease. There's, but you add to that the anxiety of living during a chaotic time of the pandemic. Yeah, but you see, that's that's a, uh, an important question because what people don't realize was that this uncertainty existed for all of us six months ago, last year. However, we do, the uncertainty is always there. We think we know, so we hold things still, but things are always changing and we're always changing. Mm-hmm. And so rather than worry about all the horrible things that could happen, because we just don't, we can't predict, it's time to just go about living our lives. You know, I do this exercise in an advanced decision-making class I teach. And I start and I say to them, look, I've been teaching a version of this course for 40 years and I have never missed a class. What is the likelihood that I'm going to be here next week? And we go around the room and these are Harvard kids, so they don't say 100%. They say silly things like 97% as if there's some Uh calculation they can do. So everybody basically says, I'll definitely be there. Then I say to them, okay, let's go around the room and I want everybody to give me a good reason why I might not be there. Invariably, the first person always says, well, you've always been here. You feel you deserve the time off. The next person says you got a flat tire on the way to the office. The next person says your dog had to go to the vet. And they each give a good reason. Now I say, what is the likelihood that I'll be here next week? And that 100% drops to 50%. Hmm. We We just don't know. We don't know, you know, that these people who are suffering with AL or have ALS, might outlive their caretakers. There's just no way of knowing. And the important thing is that for the time that we're alive, we should, you know, there needs to be life before death when too many others worry about whether there's life after death. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting way to look at it, doctor. And as we are coming up on August and September here with the back to school looming, and uh, I know that- Well, there Harvard, are many- I'm sorry, it's important for people to know that there are also many, many advantages to the shakeup now, to the dealing with this pandemic. I was just online with about 40 Harvard professors talking about teaching remotely in the Uh fall. And what all of us agreed is that there are so many advantages of this that when we are back in class face to face, we're going to take from this lesson many things to improve our teaching. The environment is clear. You know, I live near the water now and it's clearer than it's been, I don't know, the last 20 years. People have a chance during this time to see what's important to them and not to, you know, to put aside all those things they used to worry about that were actually very trivial. I think all of us could make a list of what actually feels good right now. And in doing so, should make a plan for how to continue that when the pandemic passes. But it would be a mistake to think that, you know, in the good old days, everything was perfect. It was not. And, you know, in the the future, we can take some of what we've learned to make it more perfect. People were going to work and were stressed, not liking work, you know, and so on. I think that there's a lot that this could teach us as individuals and certainly collectively. So it's nice to have something, it's too bad it's a pandemic, but something to shake us up and say, well, wait a second, how do you want to actually be in this world? What matters to you? And how to arrange your lives, our individual lives, so that we can have more of that which feels good. 
Oh, that's a that's a great point. And there are definitely things that we can learn. And it's important to remember that as opposed to just focusing on, as you said earlier, the negativity and the pessimism of the moment, really, what can we what can we use to our advantage during these times? And I was going to ask you about kind of how you're preparing for school and, and what students are doing to get ready for a year that will certainly be different from them than what they're used to. But you answered that already. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift instead to, you know, as we wrap up, what's what's next for you in the world of mindfulness? What mountain is left to conquer in your field, doctor? <laughs> well, I, I never really know what I'm going to do until I'm doing it, but I'm completing a new book. And the book is, the tentative title, at least right now, is Why Not? And Ways of Expanding All of Our Horizons, Personally, Our Health, uh, Relationships, Work, and how if we started right now and you were going to design a school, a business, your personal life, right now, how would you create it? And that is something that's actually, that this pandemic has provided us with that opportunity to rethink everything. I think that we'll be continuing with lots of the health work and you'll have to have me back in six months and I'll tell you what we're doing then. Oh yeah, absolutely. We would love that if you could come back on. I'll put it on the calendar. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Ellen Langer, so much for coming on the show today. Really, really refreshing to hear your perspective and your vast knowledge on the world of mindfulness. I think a lot of our listeners are going to find that helpful. My pleasure. And of course, we will, uh, again, link to your websites, langermindfulnessinstitute.com and ellenlanger.com. And this is really great. Thanks so much. Well, thank you again, Dr. Ellen Langer, social psychologist at Harvard University Psychology Department. And as Mike said, the mother of mindfulness, really insightful conversation and can't wait to have you back on the show. I feel like we were just scratching the surface with Dr. Langer. We're definitely going to have to have her come back and talk about some of her latest research down the road. That's all we have for you this week. Be sure to subscribe to the show at your preferred podcast destination or on our website at connectingals.org. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter if you have any questions or feedback for the show. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening, and we'll connect with you again soon. Music.